Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and auxiliary power units. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com It's episode 119 of Airlines Confidential, going live on 119. I'm Chris Chimes, and thanks for joining us. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Let me echo Chris that we appreciate you joining us for our weekly conversation about the airline business, including a great interview coming up with Mike Lenz, the Chief Financial Officer of FedEx. But before we get to that, Chris, let's get to some news items. Okay, boss, here it goes. Uh, Item number one, it's earnings season. Delta goes first in the U.S. They reported a $408 million Q4 loss. So what's the Ben take on this? Well, my take on this, Chris, was that it was expected that they were going to lose money. When you look at their total revenue and the size of the airline, $408 million isn't the worst kind of loss they could have had. And when you look at what the company said about it, they specifically said most of that loss was due to Omicron. Lots of last minute canceled bookings because of Omicron, lots of cancellations because of crew not coming in from Omicron. So they had cost issues with flights not flying and things, and they had revenue issues. So their tonality was, but for Omicron, we'd have had a pretty decent quarter. And I actually think that that's probably right. I kind of buy their spin on that if that was spin at all, because I think they are probably right. Without Omicron, I don't think they'd have had the operational issues they had. And I think their bookings would have been stronger. They were certainly reporting stronger bookings, you know, as Omicron was hitting and such. So overall, I think that they did as well as could be done for the quarter And if other airlines sort of talk the same way, sort of, but for Omicron, you know, we think we'll be okay, then I think that could suggest fairly positive things for 2022, since most of the media seems to be talking about Omicron having peaked, and maybe we're on the downside from that. Did you think it was worse than that, Chris? No, not at all. The market clearly took it in stride. I think they were up 2% on Thursday when they reported. They basically said Omicron delays the return of travel in our models, you know, 60 plus days into the spring. But I think, again, a lot of people are thinking that same way. So the market was nonplussed. I think they were obviously somewhat pleased because. There was still a lot of optimism about, you know, full year profits in 2022 and the like. So, you know, I thought it was a good call and a good way to set the table for the rest of the industry. Hopefully they've got uh, some similar kinds of outlooks. And then in that same investor call, Ed Bastian said that 8,000 Delta employees had tested positive for COVID in the last month. Meanwhile, United said 3,000 of its employees had called in sick with COVID for that same period. And Americans said that 96% of its employees had complied with either a vaccine requirement 
or requested an exemption based on medical or religious reasons. All that against the backdrop of the U.S. Supreme Court invalidating the Biden administration's vaccine requirement on employers. So, Ben, where does all this land for the airline business? Well, that's a lot to put in the hopper, isn't it? (laughs) I guess this doesn't surprise me, Chris, even though there's a lot to put together here, because all the reported news about Omicron is just about how transmissible it is. And that's why there's all the push on cloth masks don't work anymore. You got to wear the surgical mask. And so the case numbers are skyrocketing, but hospitalizations aren't that high, right? And it's not that people are getting that sick, especially since many more people are vaccinated now, but you test positive and you don't come to work. So the fact that there would be 8,000 Delta employees and 3,000 United employees, I think it's interesting, similar size airlines, quite different numbers there, I just, but it's a lot of people in any case. That doesn't surprise me. You know, If you think about the vaccine requirements just within the airline industry, not broadly, you know, in business, United sort of went out first and said, we're going to require our employees to be vaccinated. And they did that before the Biden administration created a mandate. Then the Biden administration said, if you're a federal contractor, you have to be vaccinated or we won't do business with you. And under that basis, most of the other airlines made a mandate for their employees because most of the other airlines participate in CRAF, the Civil Reserve Air Fleet. And we talked about that in an earlier show. And since airlines through CRAF are government contractors, they ran the risk of losing a lot of revenue from their CRAF contracts if they didn't vaccinate. Then the Biden administration put on this, if you have 100 employees or more, you have to be vaccinated. And my understanding is that's what was taken away by the Supreme Court. So I don't think that the government contractor mandate went away with the Supreme Court ruling because the government can do business with anyone it wants to, right? The government could say, I don't want to work with you, American Airlines. I'm not going to let government employees buy tickets on you anymore because you didn't mandate vaccines. That's kind of their right, just like any business would have, right? A business would say, I don't want to buy from this supplier, and I will buy from that supplier. So my understanding is that the Supreme Court ruling struck down the all companies over 100 people, but not the government contractor piece, which if that's the case, I expect that within the airline industry, all the airlines are going to keep their mandates up else worry about risking all their craft revenue. That's how I think all this comes down. Now, where the Supreme Court ruling may affect the airlines in some ways is in all their suppliers that aren't airlines and in and of themselves aren't government contractors, but suppliers, ground handlers, and all those people. If the change in this ruling helps more people go to work there, more people come to work, make it easier for them to hire, you know, because they have less friction in their company around mandates, that could be good for the industry. On the other hand, if fewer people are vaccinated, maybe it means more people are out. So this is a big hornet's nest here, Chris, I think. 
But net, I don't think it means a lot of change for the industry in terms of airline employees getting vaccinated or the mandates within each company to do that, but could have some effect in the in the supplier ranks. Yeah, I think it's still going to take some time to sort out the Supreme Court decision on a bunch of different levels. I was having a conversation with some pilots waiting for a flight uh, with me last week before the Supreme Court decision, and we were just chatting, and you shouldn't base anything based on kind of anecdotal conversations, but their initial reaction to what was going on was like, look, we didn't like the mandates. But now that all of us are vaccinated and we're seeing nobody's getting sick from the vaccine and the people who are getting sick from Omicron are getting mild cases, you know, this is kind of like turning people's attitudes in a constructive way. And so the debate about vaccine mandates seems to be kind of going away a bit, notwithstanding Novak Djokovic and all the headlines he's creating or whatever else. So you know, by now, most people are vaccinated that we're going to get vaccinated. And if they aren't convinced to get vaccinated after the spread of Omicron, I don't know what will. But, you know, again, I think that what has happened with the industry allows them to kind of get past this blip and be much more positive about the outlook than they might have if they were still facing workforces, you know, 40 percent vaccinated or something else. So. I, I think that's right, Chris. And I think even the most fervent anti-vaxxer would think it's okay that an individual company decides to put a mandate on. They'd say that's their right. And maybe it's my right if I were the anti-vaxxer to not do business with that company, right? And I don't think that they're saying no one should have a vaccine mandate. They're saying don't make me take the vaccine for me to get a job or for me to transact or something. But like in the tennis case, people may not like it that the tennis association is giving Djokovic a a problem, or maybe it's the country of Australia doing it. But I think people would accept that, okay, the countries have the right to do what they want to do. Tennis can do what it wants to do, and he can do what he wants to do. Yeah, look, I know... I know there are going to be some listeners who disagree with us. And again, we're not advocating vaccines as much as kind of how does the industry maneuver through this situation and get to the other side. And so, you know, I think that's the, that's the, the tenor of this conversation and, and why I think the airlines are so optimistic right now about getting through this is their workforce is vaccinated. A lot of their customers are vaccinated, people are complying with the rules, and everybody wants to get back to normal. Thanks for that clarification, Chris, (laughs) because you're right. I don't want people to misinterpret what we said either. And the 11,000 Delta and United employees who were announced to sort of test positive, most of them, if not all of them, will go through their quarantine or whatever and hopefully be back at work long before President's Weekend, which is going to be the next big travel spike for the industry. Hopefully they're back to work this week So, with yeah. the new, with the new uh, quarantine rules. In any case, Airlines Confidential is brought to you with the support of Seabury Capital Group the specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace, and defense, in financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, 
and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. And we'd also like to thank Pratt & Whitney. Pratt is a world leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines and APUs. The Pratt Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Ben, as we wrap up the discussion about this week's news, I have to think a lot of people are starting the new year quietly watching the aircraft lesser space. Uh, Last year, Aircap and GCAS completed their $30 billion merger. Lessors have been quietly grabbing market share, and their aircraft portfolio now represents well over 50% of the aircraft flying for commercial airlines. And uh, last week, Michael Inglesi, the CEO of Aircastle, a small to mid-sized lessor with 223 aircraft and 79 lessees across 43 countries, predicted more consolidation in that space. Now, Aircastle's fleet is about the tenth of the size of Aircap's 2,000 aircraft. So what do you think Inglesi is implying or what are the implications of more consolidation in that, in that world? That was a fascinating comment that he made, I thought. Aircraft lessors are extremely important to commercial aviation around the world. They provide value in lots of ways to airlines, as you know, Chris, and most of our listeners probably know. But they often have access to inventory sooner than an airline might be able to get it, especially a smaller airline. If you go to Boeing or Airbus today and say, I want to take delivery of 50 new planes, they would say, well, we can start getting those to you maybe at the end of this decade or something, right? And and lessors may have earlier delivery. For some smaller companies, they probably get a much better price on the plane. For an airline like an American United Delta, lessors don't get a cheaper price for their planes than those big airlines. But if you're a smaller airline, the lessor might get a better price because they're buying lots of planes. Tax rules in this country also allow good beneficial tax treatment if you buy big assets. And since lessors are generally money-making entities, they have what financiers call a big tax appetite. So they can buy these planes, get the tax benefit right up front. Airlines may take longer to get that. So for lots of reasons, lessors are really, really important. And if you look at the biggest customers of Boeing or Airbus, you know, half or more of the top 10 are lessors. They're not airlines. So I think airlines are relying more and more on lessors now because COVID just took so much cash out of airlines and they had to restructure their balance sheets in ways. One of the ways they generated cash was to sell airplanes they owned back to lessors against a lease for that airline airplane. So they kept the airplane, but instead of owning it on their books, they sold it. So what was an owned airplane is now a leased airplane. That's some of how they've gotten up to 50% of all airplanes flying. And with all that sort of conversation about lessors and why they're so important, I think um, 
um, Michael Inglesi's comments are spot on. There is big scale economy in the leasing space, just like there is for airlines. You know, when you buy more planes, you get them at cheaper prices. You have probably access to more capital and more opportunities. You have more diversity of how many different customers you have and how many different geographies your plane portfolio is distributed among. All of that reduces risk some. So the AirCap GCAS merger sort of forced, I think, lessors like Aircastle and others of their size to think if we really want to be competitive in this space, we probably need to be part of a bigger entity. We can't allow the merged Aircap GCAS to have structural big advantages to us around how much they pay for planes or what their financing rates are or will they own all of China or all of India or any of these big growing markets and we won't have access into those economies or things. So I think he's implying exactly what the economics are, that they probably need to merge with someone or there probably needs to be a second player that's a little closer in size to AirCap GCAS than there is now. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, I don't have an eHarmony or a Match.com profile. I've never been on any of those sites. But I read that story and his comments and thought this is like, you know, their version of swiping left or right and kind of seeing who's out there listening. But, you know, it's clear that they and others probably have some consolidation ambitions that are are likely to take place over the coming year. Well, and that suggests to me, Chris, that we should get some more aircraft lessor people on as guests going forward, too. There we go. Open call. Who's out there? Well, coming up, our conversation with Mike Lenz from FedEx. We'll be right back. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. It's our pleasure this week to uh, welcome a former colleague of mine and Ben's from American Airlines. Mike Lenz is the Executive Vice President and CFO of FedEx. Mike, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Well, thanks to both of you. Uh, Great to be on and uh, look forward to the discussion. So, Mike, we always let people introduce themselves and give a quick recap of their career and what they currently do, but how they got there in the aviation business. If you'll indulge us a second. All right, sure. Well, it's been not quite a year and a half ago that I uh, took over as CFO of FedEx Corporation, and it was literally announced about two days before uh, the pandemic was declared. So what had been contemplated as a nice opportunity transition period to go out, meet the team, spend time in the business, and that uh, quickly changed as we all experienced at that time. So, uh, you know, again, you adapt and adjust just as all of us uh, do along the way at points uh, in your career. Uh, I had been treasurer for several years before that, and I started at FedEx in 2005 at the uh, FedEx office, which was he- is headquartered in the Dallas area. So um, moved down the highway, as it were, at that point, because I had been at American Airlines for 11 years prior to coming to FedEx and had a number of roles in the finance and planning areas, including investor relations, international planning and fleet planning, and all of those have been 
very helpful background and context for uh, everything at FedEx and, and my role today. And I guess lastly, the continuum within the airline theme here is that coming out of undergrad, I was an avionics engineer for uh, McDonnell Douglas at the time, uh, now, now Boeing in both St. Louis and later in Long Beach. So uh, I guess that's been the theme throughout and it's been a great, great ride with three uh, very iconic uh, U.S. companies. That's very impressive, Mike, and congratulations on your role with such a great company as FedEx. Would you give our listeners some basics on the FedEx airline business, your fleet, your network, employees, any fun facts about the scope of your service and maybe how many air packages you transport every day, things like that? Sure. Well, this year, the total FedEx corporation will be north of $90 billion in total revenue. About half of that is the express business, which, of course, is the airline operation. But it's much broader than that in terms of the scope of uh, what we do every day. So we have over 600,000 team members. And for our most recent quarter, our average daily shipments per business day was 17 million. Now, about six and a half of those are at the express company. So if you want to think about what uh, principally is moving on an airplane versus what we're moving on the ground, uh, that's that's the rough mix there. So we have the express company, the ground company, and the freight company, which is our less than truckload operation. So those are the three main operating units we have. Put a few more facts around that. Uh, so we serve over 220 countries and territories with over 5,000 operating facilities. In total, we're close to 690 aircraft. Now about 400 of those are the uh, jet aircraft, so a very large cargo fleet. And then to support all that, as well as our ground and freight businesses, we have over 200,000 motorized vehicles. So as you can imagine, a, uh, a, a very broad scope of operations in that and an enormously successful team that uh, executes it for us every day. And beyond Memphis, Mike, what do you consider your airline hubs? So we call them uh, major sort locations of Memphis and Indianapolis are the principal mid-continent facilities we have. Uh, on the West Coast, Oakland is the principal hub there and Newark in on the East Coast. So we also have large presence at all the other major locations you might consider, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Miami. And we have a both at DFW and at AFW in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, significant operation. So it seems like every day we're hearing about a different supply chain issue as it relates to the pandemic and, and the like. How has the FedEx business been impacted uh, these past two years? Well, everybody's been navigating a different business challenge every day. For us specifically, we're a few miles downstream from the principal aspects of the supply chain issues that are getting the most play in the in the media and beyond today with the congested ports and that. Uh, we're more at the other end of that chain with you know, our customers giving us shipments to deliver to their ultimate customers, but they have been experiencing a lot of disruption along the way as well. And the flexibility and scope and scale of our networks has enabled them to still meet their customers' demand, even amidst perhaps not having everything within 
the footprint and distribution centers that they might have otherwise uh, optimized against. So again, it highlights the, the flexibility and scope of our networks. And then of course, uh, when something you know can't move on the ocean and that, we you know, fly it over the top through particularly the high value goods throughout the global economy and uh, through the system. You, uh, you ask about our U.S. hubs, our, our principal hub in Europe is at uh, in Paris, and then uh, we also have a, a hub in Guangzhou in China, as well as significant presence in, uh, in, in Hong Kong and uh, Osaka as well. So again, a, a orchestrated worldwide operation there to, to be able to deliver that. Orchestrated sounds like the perfect verb there, Mike. With operations all over the world, you must have people all over the world too. So how have you managed employee relations as part of the pandemic? Things like vaccine requirements for flight crews, all your sort and delivery crews, any other unique protocols or operational issues specific to your business that have been real challenging on the employee side? Well, first and foremost, safety for our team members and our customer is our top priority. We've continued to strongly encourage our team members to get vaccinated as that remains the most important measure to protect others, including the team members and, and our customers. So we uh, also have been in the forefront of supporting the pandemic relief as well as delivering vaccines for which we're very proud of the efforts of all 600,000 of our team members to keep commerce moving, to bring from the early stages and beyond the critical PPE that was so essential to combating the early stages of the pandemic. And now, as we talked about earlier with the supply chain disruptions and that continuing to be able to facilitate the movement of goods and commerce worldwide amidst uh, uncertainty related to both the pandemic as well as uh, supply chain considerations. So look, we've had to make a number of adjustments in terms of uh, how we operate and flexibility to, uh, to adjust and adapt. But uh, again, it's just been a fantastic effort for our team throughout all the different phases and aspects of uh, what we've been seeing here and uh, continue to adapt e even today as we, we deal with the Omicron wave that uh, is front and center. So Mike, so much of the attention on the airline business these past two years has been on more the, you know, the passenger side and disruptions and, and getting people to where they need to go. But obviously the cargo side of the business and the express business has been kind of humming along, if you will, uh, as best they could. There's been an uptick in online shopping and digital shopping Lots of things, you know, Amazon's been growing their air fleet. How has all this impacted your business? Sure. Like I said at the outset, it's been a definitely a, a, a fluid environment for the last two years. I think I'd highlight two aspects of that within the, the context of your question there. First is the pandemic accelerated the adoption and embrace of e-commerce uh, beyond what was otherwise anticipated. Our uh, marketing team estimates that the, uh, the pandemic accelerated e-commerce demand two to three years from what it otherwise uh, might have trended out upon. Fortunately, we had embraced that as a strategic imperative in terms of where the market was growing, where growth was going to be in the future within the parcel sector. And so we were fully prepared 
and were able to accommodate that. Again, wasn't a, wasn't a quick turn, but it was almost for us like going into the peak season within a matter of weeks, whereas we you know have a, a, a process that you know once we complete the peak season as we, we just did here recently, we're planning for the next one. so you got several months to prepare and plan for that. So the aspects of what we inv- had invested in, including seven day delivery, residential delivery at our ground business, uh, expansion of facilities and capabilities was invaluable along the way in terms of being able to meet and accommodate that the essential uh, needs that that were accelerated during the pandemic. You mentioned the the passenger business, and obviously the supply of underbelly capacity uh, on both the transatlantic as well as the transpacific carried a lot of freight, and that was basically uh, significantly reduced during the pandemic. So that heightened the demand for uh, the capabilities we have. And so we have continued to adjust and adapt in terms of where we're allocating the flying in that to meet that need and demand and keep the the goods flowing and the critical supplies in that like we talked about earlier. So uh, again, it was a degree of change within a time period that you know nobody would have otherwise have thought was possible if you just said to them, hey, you're going to have to do this over the next weeks and months. So uh, let's get at it. But uh, again, the team was just fantastic in being able to, uh, to adjust and, and continues to to this day. That's wonderful, Mike. I read a statistic that prior to the pandemic, Roughly 25% of all packages delivered in the U.S. went to residences, 75% to businesses. But now since the pandemic, over 70% of packages are going to residences. Do you see that much of a shift? And when you're talking about adapting, is that one of the changes you've had to make? No, absolutely. Both in terms of you know several years back, clearly seeing that the growth in the parcel sector was going to be in the residential. I think our marketing team says out for the next uh, two or three years that the you know 90% of the growth in the parcel sector is going to be residential. So that shift did and continues to occur. And our customers too are adjusting how they embrace that as well. So uh, you, you see and experience yourself, uh, you know, ship from store or you know, they're shortening the distance in terms of the number of distribution centers they have in order to fulfill e-commerce. So a lot of different models out there, and we've got the, the assets, the capability, and the network to be able to, uh, to, to support our customers in adjusting and embracing the, uh, you know, the continuing growth of the e-commerce business. So, Mike, let's switch it up a bit. There's a lot of pressure on the aviation industry to be more aggressive on sustainability goals. Where's the play and the opportunities for FedEx in that field? Sure, that's a that has long been a priority of ours, and of course is heightened in the world today. We've set a goal to achieve carbon neutrality across our global operations by 2040, and you know to get there, we're going to invest in solutions and make changes across all of the enterprise and our operations to make that real, lasting, and absolute in terms of the commitment and execution upon that. So just to give a couple examples, uh, we're investing $100 million in a carbon capture innovation through a pledge we made to establish the Yale Center for Natural Carbon Capture, 
Others have joined us in, in that as well because it's going to take a multi-pronged approach, particularly as has been well-documented. Aviation is one of the, the harder areas to see the shift going forward to carbon neutrality. Uh, we're also investing in modernizing our fleet uh, with more fuel-efficient, environmental-friendly aircraft. We will uh, we'll retire the last of what we call uh, MD-10s, which were previously uh, DC-10s, within the next year. So again, just continuing to invest in a number of initiatives. We recently announced an increase in our order with General Motors Bright Drop for electric vehicles for our pickup and delivery operations at the Express Company. So again, to uh, a fundamental plank of achieving our goals by 2040 is that we will continue to pursue those type of technologies. So it's a, again, it is a, a very much a strategic imperative and uh, one which we are putting substance behind and fully continuing down that path. Now, as you continue to grow and you're growing so much, you're going to need a lot more people too. And the world keeps talking about labor shortages and competition for talent. Airlines right now on the commercial side are hiring up dramatically for what they hope will be a stronger summer 2022 and beyond demand. But that has all kinds of issues with onboarding and training. How are you dealing with sort of the growth and the people needs for your growth? Well, it's been broadly discussed about the aspects of a labor shortage, particularly in the U.S. In fact, for us, in the uh, the most recent two fiscal quarters, we identified roughly $450 million of impact from the labor considerations. About half of that is wage rates, and the other half has been what we call network inefficiencies because we simply didn't have in a number of locations, the optimal number of, of people in place to execute in the most efficient manner. So we're having to uh, reroute, shift, extra handles, less efficiency in terms of some of the, the uh, operational execution of that. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's hitting all aspects of the economy and certainly within our business. So we're we're no different than the uh, than, than the passenger airline folks in that regard. Uh, obviously, we didn't have as big a fluctu- the fluctuation in the airline itself uh, that the passenger carriers did, where they were uh, uh, certainly cutting back on schedules. We were, as I mentioned earlier, flying as much as we uh, could in order to meet the demand. So, Mike, that other company that delivers packages that drives the big brand trucks tends to view airplanes as big, fast trucks. I don't know if that means they double park their planes and block roads and and taxiways like they do uh, around the neighborhood. But how does the FedEx philosophy overlay with regard to how you view vehicles versus aircraft? Yeah, I hadn't uh, heard that before. Maybe that follows from just the... Uh external observations that the origins of our principal competitor are as a trucking company and our origins were in inventing the Air Express market. So perhaps that's a, a bit of why there's a perception of that. But uh, in the five decades that uh, the company's been in existence, we've been continuing to build networks and capabilities that would be enormously difficult to replicate. 
And that's a combination of all types of assets in terms of facilities, aircraft, vehicles, and technology to support all that, with the most important aspect being the expertise and dedication and commitment of our of our people there. So, you know, it's certainly a dynamic business, but uh, we, we don't look at it as uh, one or the other. It's about what what's the collective whole of the capabilities. In fact, uh, within the last year, we've, we've heightened our emphasis in operating collaboratively between our different networks, uh, you know, in, in essence, the three operating units that I highlighted earlier to, uh, to again, further leverage that, that capability and uh, deliver even more value to customers and, and efficiency in our operations. Mike, you've talked so much about customers and demand and such. It just makes me think that FedEx, since its beginnings, has been a real marketing vision that's been backed up with this amazing network technology, you know, logistics around it. Whereas UPS really grew up as an industrial engineering company. And I think that's where the big fast trucks came from. If they can get it there just as quickly on a lower cost truck, go ahead and do it. Right. I think that's the way they thought of it. Well, Ben, you're, you're, you're definitely uh, well-placed to focus on technology as a, as a critical aspect of the heritage and the future of, of our business. Uh, you know, my, my boss, Fred Smith, founded the company nearly 50 years ago and way back when declared that the information about the package is as important as the package itself. And we've continued to build on that legacy of innovation and creating value and expect a a bright future ahead in that regard. Well, that's great. And Mike, as we wrap up, you've got such a great background having spent time significantly in the passenger business and the package and cargo side of the airline business. What strikes you is what's the same about these businesses and what's really different? Yeah, great question. I, first, I'd highlight you know, that the dedication and passion of the people from both experiences for me is, uh, is something that is just extraordinary. Our team is continually focused on purpose of connecting people and possibilities and strives every day to deliver what we call the purple promise, which says I will make every FedEx experience outstanding. So I think there's a there's a common passion there of the impact that the, the businesses have in terms of people and connections there. So that's uh, very much similar between the two experiences I've had there. I think it's also fair to say that there's a lot of complexity to orchestrate that is perhaps not as always appreciated by our customers, but is certainly well understood by those of us that are in the business. And uh, again, it's our duty and obligation to make that seamless and and uh, hassle-free for, for our customers, but uh, it's certainly complex. I spent some time helping out at the uh, Memphis hub here over our peak season here. And it's, it, it's just a marvel every, every time I have the opportunity to, to do that and help out about what it takes to orchestrate and the, the precision planning and execution of our team to, uh, to get it done. In terms of differences, well, I guess, you know, the packages, they don't, they don't critique the leg room, the overhead bin space or the food. So uh, <laughs> I, I guess maybe that's probably mo- most significant, but uh 
But if they uh, could, would they? So, <laughs> so. Yeah. And uh, they don't care which hub we route them through either. Well, and at least passengers sort themselves at the hub, right? <laughs> True. Yes. Mike, uh, you've been very generous with your time today. So um, I, I know our listeners are going to appreciate this. I, I just want to say on a personal level, it's been well over 20 years since we worked together. I've loved watching your career path. I was very excited for you and for FedEx when I saw you'd been promoted to CFO. So, you know, I'm personally proud of you. And I think you're a, you're an example of nice guys finish first. You're a true professional. So this has been a great conversation and I wish you all the best at FedEx um, as you uh, continue to, to lead that finance group. Well, thanks, Chris. You're uh, you're too kind, and we had quite some experiences uh, in our developmental years there at American, which <laughs> have served us both well. And it's been uh, great to see uh, the the many aspects of of your career that you built. And uh, you certainly had ha- have had a challenge at a cruise company here the last couple of years. But I'm very confident that uh, the, the team and and your leadership and helping them through that will uh, will succeed. And Ben, uh, great to uh, great to talk, and thanks for having me on. Mike, you are fantastic. I learned a lot. I'm sure our listeners will too. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The archive.net is now boarding. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Mike Lenz. Now it's time for our listener questions. You can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. So, Professor uh, Yoni from Seattle is asking about Delta's rasms and chasms, which I think are giving American and United spasms. He asks, at Delta's Investor Day, they bragged that they had the lowest chasm of the big three network carriers. They also have one of the highest RASMs in the industry. How are they able to keep their costs lower than AA and United while providing a more premium product and revenue? Well, that's a great question, Yoni. And maybe someone from Delta will come on and tell us that secret. But I have a guess, too. You know, just so I think everybody knows this, but chasm is cost per available seat mile, RASM revenue per available seat mile. Airlines, as their product, fly places, and one seat flying one mile is an ASM or an available seat mile. The available in that means that they can be sold. And so you can get revenue from that. So when they say of the lowest chasm of the big three, they're saying their cost to produce one seat they can sell to fly one mile is lower than American or United. And there's a couple ways Delta does this. First of all, they have more control of their biggest hub airports than either American or United do. So if you think about Atlanta, Detroit, Minneapolis, now LaGuardia, 
to a smaller extent, Seattle and Boston. Delta's such a large player at all those airports, it gets great efficiency in that. American does that in Charlotte, in Dallas. Miami now is getting a little bit more congested with more low fare players and such. United competes with American at Chicago. Newark had lost its slots a long time. And so United has only about 60% in Newark or 50%, not as much as Delta as of Atlanta or thing. So the point is at their airports, Delta's more efficient than the big three. That's one reason that their chasm is low. Another big reason is they have a very different fleet strategy. American and United have lots of newer airplanes. And newer airplanes are great because they burn less fuel and their maintenance needs are a little bit less. Delta has an older fleet. The risks of that is they burn a little bit more fuel and they take a little more maintenance, but Delta also has enormous competency at fixing airplanes with Delta Tech Ops. So when you look at their airplanes and their fleet, which is a big piece of an airline's expense as well, airplanes, people, and fuel are the three biggest expenses for the most part, When you look at that, they have a big advantage in airplanes themselves because their fleet is older, so they don't have as much financial burden in their chasm that American United do. So when you pay less for your airplanes or you're not burdened by as much from your airplanes and you're more efficient at your airports, those two things are enough to get them below American and United And Delta does provide a really nice product, especially if you live in a place they fly a lot of to a lot of destinations from. But I really think it's more because of their fleet and airport strategy that drives the chasm low. Yoni, you also mentioned they have one of the highest RASMs in the industry. And that too goes back to their big positions in airports. Think about it. If you run a business in Atlanta and you do business around the country and around the world, there's really no other airline that you can use other than Delta. Like if you only go to Dallas and Charlotte, you could use American, right? But if you go everywhere, (laughs) you're going to use Delta. Same thing if you live in Dallas for American and so on. And Delta's in that sort of sweet spot position in more of their airports, like I said earlier. That's what drives their high revenue and their efficiency at those airports helps drive their low chasm. So I agree with everything you just said, except I I think the secret sauce behind all this is they also run a great operation. They have, you know, really good bones and great infrastructure with regard to their privileged positions at their hubs and their older fleet with lower costs. But if they didn't run a great operation, they would fumble all those assets away. And so, you know, why do more business travelers want to fly Delta? It's because they're more dependable. And it helps drive the revenue difference. But they really have just kind of got locked in that zone for a number of years now. And they show no intention of giving that position up. And then, Ben, another question from one of our faithful listeners, Joe from Tampa, who wants to know why and when did aircraft start installing security cameras on board? Great to hear from you, Joe, and thanks. Well, this is another consequence of the 9-11 attacks on the industry. Before 9-11, Cockpit doors were kept open for most of the boarding. And in fact, pilots could 
keep an eye on who was boarding and what was going on in the cabin, you know, just by sort of turning around and looking. Now, once the pilots are in the cabin, the cockpit is sealed. So after 9-11, most airlines and most airplanes have installed security cameras sort of above the cockpit door that look back down the aisle. That way, the pilot sitting in their secured cabin can watch the boarding, can know when the door has closed, can make sure that there's, you know, everything's going okay and uh, they don't need to call into the airport for anything. And they can sort of watch what's going on from their sort of sealed position. I don't think the cameras are clear enough to sort of resolve a dispute in row 32 between customers and two of the coach seats. It's not that kind of thing. It's not that everybody in the plane is being watched for what they're texting on their phones or what movie they brought or what they're doing to the person next to them or anything like that. It's all about security and the pilot sort of having understanding what's going on with the plane. The pilot in command of the plane is in control of that aircraft. So they got to know what's going on. And when that door is sealed, they'd be isolated from all that without the cameras. Well, and we also know that if there are 200 passengers on board, there are now 200 additional security cameras in, <laughs> in the cabin. So Probably um, 250, actually. <laughs> exactly. As we you know, know all too well with social media posts about disruptive behavior in the cabin. So there's plenty of camera and security oversight going on in the cabin of an aircraft. Finer Wine is coming up and it's brought to you by a very fine logistics solution for airlines, TA Connections. TA Connections partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization to ensure that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and are only paying for the rooms that you consume, delivering value and savings to their clients. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Chris, this finer wine is from Kevin in Sykesville, Maryland, and he's complaining about American. I booked a flight from BWI to Mazatlan for February. I happened to check my reservation online, and to my horror, they changed the departure from Baltimore to Philadelphia and from Saturday to Friday. They also changed the return flight from Mazatlan to BWI, getting me only to Phoenix. I guess they expect me to drive back to Baltimore? No messages or emails were ever sent from the airlines to notify me of these ridiculous changes. I even double-checked my spam folder. I tried to change my flight online since during COVID changes are free. Nope, I can't change my flight online and have to call. I called and got recordings about wait times being at least four hours. They tell me live chat is available on the mobile app, so I downloaded that. I get on the chat and have been disconnected three times, forcing me to repeat the same info. I currently have been on chats for more than 90 minutes, and they just told me no flights are available and to call reservations. I see cheaper and shorter flight times available by American as I am chatting, but I don't want to double book and not get refunded. I don't know if it's just me, but this whole thing is just out of control. <laughs> Eesh, geez. Um, Kevin, it's not just you. Uh, I, my head was spinning reading this when it came in, and it started spinning again as... Ben was just uh, 
repeating it. Um, this is a big fine. I can't imagine what went wrong here. And it, this is almost an example of what uh, Tony Lefebvre was talking about last week when at some point you just have to make the call and cancel things. He would have almost have been better off if American would have just canceled his reservation and said, we have had a change of plans and we've refunded your money, start again, than to kind of set him into this this you know Smurfs in space kind of thing where he has nowhere to go and no one to talk to. So I hope this is now resolved. This is this came in a couple of weeks ago, but I hope it's now resolved, Kevin. And you definitely need a vacation after this. And Kevin, if there was a resolution and you want to write in, tell us about it, please do. You're right, Chris. This is a fine. The amazing thing to me. I can almost understand why they maybe moved his flight to Philadelphia from Bwe. The airports aren't that far apart. American has a hub in Philly, so probably more resource. But they certainly could have told him that. And then to dump him off in Phoenix, that was the real kicker for me. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with Phoenix. We're not picking on Phoenix either, but that's not where he wanted to be. So. No, there's nothing wrong with Phoenix unless you unless you're trying to get to Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> ben, as we wrap up the week, my shout out goes to the men and women of the TSA who often have a thankless job but are critical to keeping the airlines operating safely each and every day. They just published their annual top ten list of weird items confiscated for 2021. And the list included bullets embedded in a stick of deodorant, a chainsaw a meat cleaver, and my favorite, not that it's a personal favorite, a burrito stuffed with crystal meth. What an amazing job TSA does. And I assume maybe a dog or a machine or something realized what was in that burrito. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great shout out. My shout out goes to small but maybe growing North Atlantic Airways. This is the rebirth of Norwegian Air, which for a few years flew a lot of flights into the U.S. and had very cheap fares into Europe. Everybody wondered how they did it. And even in the pre-COVID years when most airlines were making a lot of money, Norwegian sort of broke even. So everybody thought this can't go on very long. And Certainly when COVID came, Norwegian was one of the airlines that failed. But North Atlantic is sort of the rebirth. It's some people from Norwegian. It's probably some of the Norwegian planes restruck in their financials. So they probably got them a little cheaper than Norwegian paid. But just this week, they got USDOT approval to fly to the U.S. So congratulations. I think it's great. And we'll see whether they have a little more staying power than the original Norwegian did. My guess is they will, because they're not talking about lots of planes flying over the transatlantic to all these cities the way Norwegian was. But nobody likes it when an airline goes under. So just as we saw when WOW went away, some of the people created play that's just starting. And now Norwegian goes and Norse Atlantic starts and they're coming back over to the US. So go for it, guys. That's a good one. So good luck uh, to them as well. As we say goodbye, thanks again to Michael Lenz for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you here next week. Have a great week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.